The Judo Chop Suey podcast is presented by Health IQ, a life insurance agency that helps health conscious people lower their rates on their life insurance. Are you someone who takes care of their health and fitness and takes special care of themselves through proper nutrition? Do you lift weights or take part of a physical activity like judo? And I'm sure many of you listening do. Then visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to learn more about Health IQ's special rates for active people like you and me. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, and these savings are exclusive to Health IQ customers. So if you want to learn more about how Health IQ can help you save on your life insurance, visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to get a free rate quote and to learn more about Health IQ's special rates. Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman, back with some judo news, judo opinions, and other sorts of shenanigans that I'd like to cover. At the time of this recording, it is the beginning of February, and I'm aiming for a Tuesday, February 6th release. So it'll be after the Super Bowl by the time you guys hear this. So I'm going to get this out of the way now. Here is my prediction for the Super Bowl. I'm going to find out if I'm right by the time um, this gets released. I predict the Patriots will win the Super Bowl. I am looking forward to the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. I've said it before. I'll remind you guys I'm originally from New England. Now, even though Florida is my home and I love uh, the Tampa Bay area and I'll never, never leave. Um when it comes to having a rooting interest in a team that is not a local team, it's always going to be a team from New England. In that case, it's the New England Patriots. I think it's going to be a fantastic matchup, and I really can't wait. I've got uh, some wings ready to grill up for the big game. I'm not having any party or anything like that, but I just I like eating wings while I watch football. It's, it's just something that us U.S. Americans like to do from time to time, mainly time to time every Sunday between September and December. Or January. Or in this case, February. On this episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about Osotogari. In my never-ending quest and desire to improve my basic judo skill, I've decided uh, over the past uh, couple of days, couple of weeks, to reevaluate my Osotogari. Now, it doesn't mean that I stopped practicing Ogoshi. You know, I'm still doing that both right side and left side and trying to really get a good handle on that. But... I was working on Osotogari the other week, and I wanted to let you guys know some things that I changed up, and I think it uh, may bring up an interesting point of view. And I also want to talk about an interesting article about Osotogari. It's an article that I read nearly 20 years ago, but I decided that I'd like to share that article with you on this episode. I would also like to cover at a very high level the evolution of judo rules over the past 60 years or so. I think you guys may find this pretty interesting. I'm not going to deep dive and go into every single rule, but it might be interesting to go down, you know, memory lane, so to say, to see how judo has evolved over the past 60 plus years uh, in terms of Shi'ai. So before I continue on with the rest of this podcast, I want to get to the housekeeping items. For those who may be new to the podcast, the housekeeping items are 
when I discuss items that are not specifically related to judo. So sometimes that could be what I'm watching on TV. That could be listener reaction. That can be what's going on in my life that's not judo related. If this part of the show isn't really your cup of tea, I would strongly suggest that you take a look at my podcast show notes and figure out where the next subject is starting because on the show notes, I put exactly what I'm talking about and the timestamps within the episode where those discussions are being made. So I understand not the, you know, the housekeeping items isn't for everybody, but a lot of people like me are rambling on things that aren't specific to judo. So I oblige them. So there's really one big thing that I wanted to get to. And there is a listener email that I wanted to get to as well. But the big thing that I really want to talk about here is Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey is now in the WWE. Now, the last time I talked about Ronda Rousey was at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, when she got absolutely steamrolled by Amanda Nunez in the octagon. If I recall correctly, I said at the time that I really thought she was done. And I really, at the time, I just didn't think she had any more business being in the octagon. She just... She looked terrible out there. She looked like the MMA game had passed her by. And a lot of people say that it's her coach's fault. I, I believe his name is Edmund Targaryen or something like Targaryen. <laughs> That's Game of Thrones. What am I talking about? Edmund Tarverdian. And now look, I'm not I'm not an MMA expert. That's not my arena. Hell, I'm not really an expert on anything. But so I can't really comment on whether or not her coach was good for her or not. But regardless of that, it really did look like the MMA game had passed her by. With her being on the WWE, in terms of women, she's the biggest draw. No question about it. I don't, you know, I've complained about this before. Wrestling is something, professional wrestling is something that I used to love. I really used to love professional wrestling. But something has changed over the past five to ten years. I don't know what it is. A lot of a, a lot of the the narrative on what makes a good wrestling match has been driven by these internet wrestling community dorks who think that everything that happens in Japan is superior to anything that ever happened in the WWE. And a lot of that narrative is is driven by a guy out there on the interwebs. Uh, He's got his own site and, and podcasts and stuff. His name's Dave Meltzer. He, for whatever reason, loves Japanese wrestling. He loves New Japan Pro Wrestling. And much to the chagrin of guys like him, Ronda in the WWE is now an immediate draw. And I don't want to hear these, these goofballs from the internet wrestling community try and sell me on Asuka. I could not care less. I currently do not have a subscription to the WWE Network, which... All their, they're not even pay-per-views anymore. Years ago, you used to have to pay like $50 to watch the Royal Rumble or WrestleMania. Uh, but you don't have to do that anymore. You just subscribe to the WWE Network. I am not a subscriber to the network. But you know what? Putting Ronda Rousey on WrestleMania, I'm going to subscribe. And I'm going to subscribe to watch that. And I'm sure many other people who do not follow wrestling or have a cursory interest interest in wrestling or are maybe just you know guys like me who used to love wrestling but the the whole thing has passed them by people who were fans of hers from MMA but could care less about wrestling i know a lot of those people are going to buy subscriptions to the WWE network to see her 
in WrestleMania. And WrestleMania, I went last year because it was in Orlando. It's a tremendous live event. I guess on TV last year, it didn't come out, come off as well as I thought it did when I was there in person. And I don't expect uh, this year's WrestleMania to be any different, to be honest. So like I said before, she appeared at the Royal Rumble. She didn't really do much. She, she, got, she came out to Bad Reputation by Joan Jett. Uh, that was her entrance song, and, and I'm sure for many of you, this song brings up images of Shrek beating up on a bunch of knights at Lord Farquaad's tournament. People didn't really know what the music was going on until uh, until on the big screen it showed Ronda Rousey in Rowdy Roddy Piper's uh, font, you know, that he used to have Hot Rod in his shirt, and the crowd went nuts. She got a huge pop, but the entire spot at the Royal Rumble was a bit underwhelming, and she... She came down. She didn't really run down. She kind of walked down and, you know, she was kind of trying to contain her smile because I know she loves, she's loved wrestling and, and she's really excited to be a part of the WWE. Um, but she gets in the middle of the ring. I think Charlotte and Asuka and I, I can't remember who the other girl is. They were all in there. Ronda attempts to shake Azuka's hand, and Azuka slaps that out of the way. Uh-oh, there it is. There's the, there's the heat that's going to start the rivalry right there. Yawn. Whatever. So she points to the sign at WrestleMania that's hanging, which I really can't stand when wrestlers do that. Look, if you, if you want to announce that you're going to WrestleMania, grab a microphone and yell in somebody's face. I Just don't point silently to the ceiling. So so then she she gets out of the ring, shakes Stephanie McMahon's hand, and... And that was pretty much the segment. I did not watch the Royal Rumble. I, I, again, wrestling is just not what it used to be. But Ronda being a part of it now is going to pique my interest quite a bit. And I'll be sure to tune in just for the segments that Ronda is on. And then I'll probably tune it out because I could care less about Shinsuke Nakamura and strong style backflipping BS that they do these days. Good Lord. So I know I said earlier that, you know, this is the housekeeping section and I don't really talk about, this is where I talk about other items that are not related to judo. But this story with Ronda being in the WWE is semi-judo related. I'm going to bring up this point. This is something that I've read before when she made her transition into MMA. And I, you know, I don't, I don't like getting stories from Reddit. I really don't because Reddit doesn't it doesn't represent everybody, but it does represent a fair amount of people who may not be on other social media platforms that they feel the same way. There's people out there who who are poo pooing this decision by Ronda to be in the WWE, and you know people are saying things like, you know, she really should give back to judo and. And she should be a part of Team USA coaching up the Olympics uh, uh, hopefuls for on the women's side. My personal feeling on that is that I I, I don't just I don't agree with that take at all. Uh, well, for starters, I know that she's going to be starting her own website called, uh, you know, RondaRousey.com. And, and from what I've seen on Instagram and some of the video clips released, she's going to be uh, doing uh, giving back to the judo community in that sense, but even without the website and 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 giving back to the judo community and the MMA community through that, I really don't think anybody should be in a position to be critical of the decisions she's made, especially after all the sacrifices that she's made throughout her life to 
earn a bronze medal in the Olympics and represent Team USA for many years. And quite frankly, you know, the history between her and Team USA is very well documented. I'm not sure if I should really go into some of that information here because I, I don't have all the details in front of me. But I, if you do a curse, you know, just a search on on Google on Ronda Rousey and, and USA Judo, I think you'll find a lot of things. You know, she's been critical of Jason Morris in the past in, in her autobiography. She's often talked about not receiving support and, and, and stipends, if you will, from USA Judo uh, for, throughout the years. Um, I know Kayla Harrison has talked about struggling throughout the um, throughout her uh, judo competitive career with Ronda Rousey, you know, living on ramen noodles and that kind of thing. And heck, even Kayla Harrison and, and Travis Stevens has been very critical of USA Judo. And, and if you haven't noticed, they are not really involved with USA Judo in any capacity at, at all. So you've got two bronze medal winners and a double Olympic gold medal winners not involved in USA Judo. Now, look, I'm not saying that the current staff at USA Judo has, has any responsibility or, or, or shoulders any blame for the past actions of USA Judo, but you, you, you got on the, the, you know, the people out there who say you should give back to the team USA and USA Judo. I, I would argue that all of the, you know, these athletes that I've brought up and others have given way more to USA Judo than they have received uh, during their competitive careers. And if they want to pursue the best avenue for financial success and long-term success for their families, I, go go ahead. If that means going into the WWE, by all means, for especially for Ronda, for her to be able to go into WWE, she's going to profit. Well, not only I'm sure she's got a very lucrative uh, contract with the WWE. Hopefully, she's got a contract that's very similar to Brock Lesnar that she shouldn't. I don't think somebody like Ronda Rousey should be like everybody else on that roster traveling, you know, 250 to 300 days out of the year because she's not like everybody else. She she is the exception and she is going to be the draw just like Brock Lesnar. You know you don't see Brock Lesnar on every single, you know, raw every single Monday night. He he shows up for the big events and and that's how it should be because he's he's the, he's the draw. So between you know, making money at the WWE, the merchandising that she's going to sell, it's going to really put her in a position to continue her acting career because it's, I really believe it's the only way that it would have been relevant or she would have stayed relevant in the mainstream because good Lord, if she took another fight in the UFC and lost or even went to some other organization like Bellator, it just I, it just wouldn't have ended well for her. And I, I, I'm i sure she's got plenty of money in the bank. You know, hopefully she's got a good money manager. But, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the WWE is great for her. It's great for her future. Hopefully it won't take her away from her family uh, very long. And uh, I'm sure... I'm sure her representatives carved out a nice contract for her because she's a draw. And, and it's, just, it's as simple as that. She is a draw and she's the exception. All right. It's been a while since I've done this. It's time for my favorite segment of the Judo Chop Suey podcast. What time is it? Listener reaction. So it's been a while since I've received an email uh, from somebody. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't get reactions and feedback from the podcast, but it's been a little while since I've gotten an email. 
And I always love hearing from you guys, the listeners. I really, at this point, you know, I don't expect you all to be emailing me constantly because, look, I, I listen to a bunch of podcasts. I don't email any of them. But I'm always grateful when I receive one. So if you're going to spend the time to write to me, I'm going to spend the time to read it on the air or on the podcast. It's not really on the air because we're not live. I'm recording this, as you guys know. Anyway, uh, here goes. Hey, Dave. First of all, thanks for the show. Judo-related podcasts are quite a rarity on the web, and it's always a sheer pleasure for me to listen to your ramblings. You know what you're talking about a billion times what I ever will, and I particularly enjoy the tone and atmosphere you manage to put into the podcast. All right, this is me here. I really don't know what I'm talking about. I, I have no clue. I'm just a buffoon behind the microphone that press record and uploads it to the interwebs. And all of a sudden, I'm viewed as some kind of a genius with sage wisdom. I am I am not that. I'm just your, your average club showdown that's just passionate about judo and is willing to learn from others as, um, you know, maybe you guys can learn from me after a while. This is all... We're all learning from each other. Anyway, all right, let me continue on. Let's see, blah, 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 blah. What's more, it keeps me updated with that ever-changing sport of ours. I've put my gi on back on last year after a, well, 25-year break. Needless to say, I can deal with some regular updates. Well, that that's great. Uh, 25 years, it kind of makes me wonder, in those situations, did you quit when you were 5 and now you're 30? Or did you quit when you're uh, 20 and now are you 45 or, or something like that? I'm always curious when I hear stories of people coming back to judo after a long break, you know, how old they were when they stopped and how old they are when they're getting back into it. All right, continuing on to the core of my mail now, Star Wars. Oh, boy. All right, here we go. I hear some of your arguments, but on my part, I really enjoyed it. Let me try to list my reasons. Number one. The episode stands on its own. The plot circles around that situation of the rebels about to be annihilated any minute. They can't escape. They're immediately tracked down and one of the impressions it let me with is that sustained feeling of tension. Hey, and you know what? I had that same feeling of tension too, wondering when the movie was going to end. <laughs> Alright, continuing on. The Order is behind their back at all times. There was no moment where I felt, okay, it's time to let, get a big breath in now before the next battle comes. In a way, I see it like a space opera, like uh, not an easy thing to build, don't you think? All right, I, I get that. Um, but, you know, speaking of not being able to take a breath, you know one thing I can't stand these days? I wish movie theaters had bathrooms, like, in the theater itself, or or maybe the the, the bathroom had a screen where that's playing the movie that you're watching and you're using the bathroom because I, I, you know, there are times, you know, you get to the theater and you, you have a, you know, a big something to drink and some popcorn and then like 45 minutes in the movie, you got to go really bad and then you can't, there's no, it's not a DVR, you can't pause it, right? So you, you, you just kind of silently, either you, you get up and miss an important scene or you silently suffer for two and a half hours and I usually choose the latter unless it's a bad movie and I'll choose the former. All right, no, enough of that. Number two, the subquest is not uninteresting. Leaving space was a necessity to develop the story and the friendship between those lovers to be. Star Wars has a thing for places like the Cantina in Episode One. Now, uh, was it Episode One or Episode Four? I, I, I 
think you mean the most Isley Cantina, which that casino scene, you know, they're trying to rip off on that stuff. Just be original. Goodness gracious. Anyway. Oh, here, continuing on. That casino is probably not the best development ever. Of course, I agree. But it permits that all hope is not lost. There's a handful of rebels at the end of the movie, but you know, some more will come. And number three, women. Probably one of the first times where I watched a flick with such round and interesting female characters. Episode 7 had it coming with Ray, and it went down that track with grace. Nothing like man bashing or whatever. Just a balanced and harmonious way of staging men and women's relationships uh, in a military context. When was the last time we saw a woman sacrificing herself um, with her ship to save a cause? Now, here's the thing with that scene. I hear you, anonymous emailer. That should have been Princess Leia uh, dying in that scene, in that ship. It, it should have been her. That would have been something else. That would have maybe been something that would have changed my opinion on the movie entirely, despite its other flaws. I mean, to, to have Leia sacrifice herself like that would have been uh, would have been really interesting. And what would have really been interesting to me is if Ray and Ben Solo like joined forces as an evil couple or something and started, you know, trying to take over the galaxy. That would have really been interesting to me. But alas, they didn't go down that path. He goes on to agree with me that the, the Mary Poppins bit with Princess Leia was not most it was not the most inspired part of the movie, uh, but for me nothing beats <laughs> Luke milking that ginormous alien cow. Yeah, I forgot to mention that scene. Um, that was horrible, horrible, unnecessary, and you know another thing. I I I asked somebody this at the club. At my club, because we were debating the merits of the movie, whether it was good or not. Oh, uh, what did Luke die of exactly? Any anybody? Ben Kenobi died in a fight. Uh, Darth Vader died in a fight, a and Yoda died because he was like over nine hundred years old. What's Luke supposed to be in this movie? Sixty two. He does a little astral projection and he keels over. Come on! Come on get out of here! I thought sixty was the new forty or something. I, I don't know. I, I, I appreciate the email. I do think you make some good points, but I felt, you know, like I said, the, the movie fell flat for me. And um, I'm, I know I'm not alone in that opinion. And I know you are not alone in that opinion of, of how you felt about the movie. A lot of people loved it. It just, just didn't do it for me. If you want to shoot me an email, send it to judochopsuishow at gmail.com. If you want to feel, follow me on Instagram, you could search for me at La Vida Judoka. That also happens to be my Twitter handle as well. And if you want to find me on Facebook, you can search for Judo Chop Suey Podcast and you'll be able to find the official Judo Chop Suey Podcast Facebook page. And if you're bold enough, you can find me on Facebook and friend request me. You can do that too. I've had a few of you do that. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, either of those you want to get in contact with me, I love to hear from you guys. Now, speaking of Facebook, I just got a Facebook message while I was saying all of that just a few moments ago uh, from none other than Mr. Ryan Vargas. He says, hey, hope all is well. Just listen to your recent podcast just now. Thanks for all your support. Now it's just time to create and adapt to these new rule changes. Yeah. And, you know, Ryan, I, I appreciate you checking the checking out the podcast and listening in. That may very well be my first confirmed 
uh, Team USA listener to the podcast, so I really appreciate that. I figured a a, a young, handsome man like yourself would be busy with uh, training and and you know chasing girls <laughs> or surfing or whatever. But uh, I appreciate you taking time to listen to this old curmudgeon behind the mic and um, and taking a few moments out of your day to write to me. I appreciate that. Yeah, that new rule change. I talked about it in my previous episode. They ought, to, they ought to just call it the Ryan Vargas rule because, honestly, you, you the IJF, in all its wisdom and, and glory, decided to pretty much nerf your judo somewhat. And, look, you're a talented kid, and I wish you the very best in 2018, and I'm sure you and your coaches will come up with an appropriate game plan to find success in 2018 on the IJF World Tour. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you compete. But I'm of the opinion that if you don't perform in the way that you did at the World Championships, the IJF isn't touching those rules. And I feel very strongly about that. And I said it last last week or two weeks ago, and I'll say it again. Shame on you, IJF, for basically singling out an individual, in my opinion. Because nobody else on, that, on, on the tour at the World Championships uh, did judo in that way. And it was judo. It's not Brazilian jiu-jitsu at a judo fight. I don't care what anybody says. That was just straight-up judo, just done a different way. All right. Anyway, moving along. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Osoto Gari. Now, in case I haven't said this before, and I'm pretty sure I have over the past year plus, Osoto Gari happens to be my Tokui Waza. It is definitely my favorite technique to do. It's my most reliable technique. It's my go-to technique. If I feel like I need a a throw, this is the throw that I always go to. It's a throw that I do from a variety of grips. I do it from a variety of combinations. It, it sets up other throws really well for me. But it just, for whatever reason, as odd as it is, a lot of people claim that Osotogari is a big man's throw. And I, I really don't buy that. I Actually, I don't really buy that for a lot of, or really all judo throws. I've seen really tall people do Tomoe Nagi very well. And I've seen short people do Osotogari and Uchimata very well. And for whatever reason, standing at a towering five foot six and a half inches, Osotogari has just been a great throw for me. And yeah, just to clarify... I do understand that there are throws and there are techniques that lend itself to bigger, taller people. And there are techniques that lend itself to to shorter people. You know, uh, for example, it would be very difficult for somebody who's six foot six to do drop Sayoyatoshi on me at five foot six. That's hard. That's asking a lot. There's a lot of guys that can do it. I'm sure Tushishvili could get me with that very easily for as massive of a man as he is. But in general, when it comes to techniques, I, I really believe all throws are for everybody. And it's just a matter of making them work for you. So Osotogari, the way that I have been doing Osotogari for years now, when I practice the Uchikomi, when I practice the throw itself, I typically take a Japanese approach to doing it. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying I look like the Japanese when I do judo or when I do Osotogari. But the way that is typically taught in many, if you go on YouTube and you see somebody like uh, Yamashita do Osotogari, 
I try and approach Osotogari in that way in my practice. So how that may typically look is you do your stand. And I think everybody listening here that does judo has practiced Osotogari. So how it's typically taught is you step forward. If you're a righty, you step forward with your left foot. You, you step forward in an upright manner. And you pull your opponent or your training partner towards you. You So you you step in. You pull your training partner off balance to their side as you're stepping in. And you're using your hands to, to get them off balance to the side. Some people teach that with your lapel hand. You bring it up to the side as if you're listening to a telephone. And with your left hand, your, your sleeve hand, you're moving your arm out in such a way to as if you're looking at a wristwatch. So you have a standard sleeve lapel grip. Your your sleeve grip is by the training partner's elbow and your lapel hand is a little bit close to the neck, not halfway down the the, the chest area, but, but by the neck. Some people choose to take an over or behind the neck grip with this and that's perfectly fine. I know a lot of big guys like to do that. I'm not keen on that personally, but I know a lot of other people are. So you take that grip, you step off to the side, you bring your leg through, and you swing your leg through if you're going to throw your training partner. And if you're a righty, you swing your leg through and and bring it behind your training partner's right leg, and you reap. You, you, you use your hands to continue that motion that you initiated at the beginning of the entry. You keep the uh, training partner tight, your chest to chest. You reap the leg, you bend forward, and... Continuing on with that motion, they fall to the, uh, in front of you. Now, that may not be the best audible explanation of Osotogari, but I think for the purposes of what I'm trying to convey here, uh, that's good enough. I mean, look, if, if the off-balancing, some people like to off-balance to the, to, the, to the side rear corner, that's perfectly fine. It, it's a little bit uh, sort of what I wanted to talk about as well with that. And I'm sure many of you have had different flavors of Osotogari being taught to you. Uh, the way that I just discussed, some people discuss the steering wheel way, which is something that I am going to cover. So those basics is pretty much what you will get at any standard judo club in terms of instruction for Osotogari. Now, admittedly, every once in a while, I have trouble practicing techniques on certain people, especially people who are bigger than me. And heavier than me. And I've worked with, you know, bigger and heavier people in the, in the past. Obviously, most of my training partners have always been bigger and heavier. But sometimes the bigger guys will give you some in terms of Kazushi. And other people won't give you nearly as much. And you've got to make more of an effort to make the technique work in, or, or approach it a different way. At least that's been my experience anyway. If you want to criticize me and, you know, say that I've got terrible judo, I'm fine with that, whatever. But when I was working with my sensei on Osotogari, he is somebody who's bigger and he's somebody that for whatever reason, it's the way he stands or whatever the case may be, I have a tougher time doing uchikomi with him. I'm not saying that he's a bad uke. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying some people and their body types and the way they stand and the way they do things when you are practicing is different and everybody's different. And, and for him, whatever it is, all I know is that when I do a technique on him in practice, it's got to be spot on or it's just not going to feel right. But um, 
the other week I was practicing Sotogari with him and he, I was having difficulty, you know, doing the throws in the crash pad. I felt like I was giving far more effort to throw him than what I feel should be. And with the help of the other assistant instructor there, shout out to Jim, my buddy. They had me doing Osotogari a uh, a different way, a different way than what I was used to. So to summarize this, and I mentioned this briefly before, what they had me do was take a very strong step um, and not a necessarily upright step like is typically done. A strong step using a steering wheel motion with my hands. Going chest to chest instead of the the you know using the hands to open the person up up to the side and going chest to chest. So in this uh, entry, I was using more of a steering steering wheel motion, almost bringing um, his elbow into him, and you know really using a strong lapel hand, stepping in very strongly and and almost in a. Not in a downward motion, but stepping in in a way to cause his his back to and, and his, his knee to not buckle, but almost in a sense rooting him down onto his right foot. And my head motion was a little bit different as well. Instead of, you know, a, a lot of times when I practice judo techniques, the, the, the head always seems to be the part that I don't do as diligently as I may do other parts of the throw, but I, it really is critical. And it's something that I don't do as well as I should, because I'm so worried about doing other things as part of the throw that the head almost gets neglected a little bit. It's not that I have improper head movement, but I don't think I have efficient head movement at times. So my head was a little bit more of a downward motion as opposed to looking straight behind uh, my training partner's, you know, back, so to say. So with this entry, I reaped through with the leg, which is a little bit difficult with the head motion. So I don't get that big reap to the front as as big as I would normally do in my the other way that I do it. But I get the I get as big a reap as I can, and and I come through and and clipped his right leg, and he went over very easily and very efficiently. It took me a little while to get used to the mechanics of the entry, but it, I, by a little while, I'm talking about maybe two minutes, three minutes. But as soon as I got my entry down, it felt very smooth. And all of the issues that I was having with whatever, if it's, is you know, my awkwardness with somebody who's a little bit bigger or whatever, or whatever the case may be, he went over like it was nothing. And I was rolling through on these throws, you know, with that kind of continuation. It's not, it's not something that I aim to do all the time, but on crash pad work, I, I do like to roll through on my throws because it's, because I'm going, I'm fully committing to the throw and boy, I got to tell you, I mean, whatever issues I was having before doing Osotogari the way that I, I normally do Osotogari, that went all out the window as soon as he, he had me tweak this a little bit. So this is going to be a way that I practice Osotogari, you know, moving forward, at least for a little while. It's it's a it's a different entry, and it's not one that I've ever really seen, not on YouTube or anything. I tried searching YouTube, but um, I just couldn't really find anything. I wouldn't go as far as saying it's a competition-type throw because the, the step entry 
is a little traditional, is, is traditional. And speaking of which, that's exactly what the article is about, the entry and how Osorogari is typically taught. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. And given the fact that he's from Puerto Rico, I've often said, and I mentioned this before in a previous episode, I've talked about Caribbean judo, that they do judo a certain way, people in countries from the Caribbean. And I don't know if this is a way that's commonly taught uh, in the Caribbean in terms of Osotogari, but it was really nice. It was different. It, I I love being challenged um, in class or even you know on this podcast or whatever the case may be. I love my ideas being challenged. I love my perceptions on how throws should be uh, be challenged. And so it was an opportunity for the way that I've done Osotogaris for years to be challenged. Try a different way. Try a different entry. Try a different technique. I'm not always right. You know, not that I sit around saying that I'm right, but the way that I've always done things does not necessarily have to be the only way. So I came away from that that class um, feeling like I improved tremendously. If not, not just my Osotogari against somebody who may uh, be bigger, but the other basics that come with doing Osotogari or other techniques. It's just a different approach. And, and trying different approaches allow me to do judo in a different way when those situations present itself instead of waiting for those opportunities uh, where my judo feels a little bit more comfortable. I can sometimes make those opportunities happen instead of waiting for them. And with this version of Osotogari, I feel like this is a situation, this is a kind of technique that I can almost force my will upon it instead of, you know, circling around and there's nothing wrong with that. Believe me, I love doing judo that way. But instead of circling around and waiting for that right opportunity, sometimes I feel like with this version of Osotogari, I can make that opportunity whenever I want. So it's something I'm going to be messing around with and trying. Now, I've alluded to an article that I would like to read uh, a couple of times. I've talked about this on this uh, segment on Osotogari and in this episode. There is an article that I read years ago before I did judo. I'm talking about back in the late 90s. Golly, maybe almost 20 years ago on Rec Martial Arts. Does anybody remember Usenet? I I would venture to guess anybody... Under the age of 30 probably does not remember Usenet. And I'm not saying actually Usenet still exists, but before Reddit and and chat room, well, not so much before chat rooms, but Internet forums um, and things along Facebook, you know, social media, all that people flocked to news groups and there was a martial arts news group called Rec Martial Arts and there was a fellow on there, a judoka, he was a, let's see, a sandan at the time. His name is Ben Holmes. And I don't know if Ben still does judo. I've never actually conversed with him at all, uh, Not certainly not in person. I may have messaged him a couple of times through Usenet in a reply to one of his posts. He was almost the resident judoka of rec martial arts. This was back in the days where Brazilian jiu-jitsu was really taking off on the internet in terms of discussion, especially right after the Hoist Gracie wins at uh, UFC 1, 2, and 3. And it was a popular place for martial artists of all different 
flavors to join and have discussions on martial arts. So I think the very first time I read Ben's article was on Rec Martial Arts when he posted it either in the late 90s or early 2000s, maybe circa, you know, 2001 or something along those lines. Uh, I happened to find this article on a website called Best Judo. I, I did a search for what I knew his title of his article was. I, I searched on the interwebs for classical Osotogari doesn't work. And this article happens to be on this website called Best Judo. I've, I've seen this website before. I've not been on this website in quite t- some time. It's www.bestjudo.com. So here's his article. I'm going to... I'm going to read this. I'll try not to be too lengthy. If I feel like I have to skim through it, I will. All right, here it goes. Begin in the right natural posture. Make your opponent step forward with his right foot by pulling him gently to his right front corner. Put your left foot outside his right foot to break his balance to his right back corner by pulling him towards you with your left hand and pushing him backwards with your right. Lightly raise your right leg and swing it past your opponent's right leg. Clip his thigh hard from behind with your thigh. At the same time, pull down hard with your left hand and push toward his right back corner with your right hand. Your opponent's leg will fly up and he'll fall directly backwards. It has long been a pet peeve of mine that Osotogari is rarely taught as, as it is actually performed. All of us are familiar with the classical form of the technique as described and shown above. And as many times we practice that form... When it's time to actually use this throw in either Rondori or Shi'ai, it is never done this way. Interestingly enough, Osotogari is generally roughly the third leading throw used in competition, so it's not by any means a rarely used throw, and yet it is rarely taught the way that it's actually performed. My first assertion, the basic or classical form of Osotogari doesn't work. I am fully aware that most judoka reading this previous sentence will now think to themselves that I must know very little about judo to make a statement like that. However, Phil Porter makes a very similar statement concerning classical Osotogari. So I'm in fairly good company. All right, now this is me. I know a lot of you out there may have issues with Phil Porter. He's since passed away, but uh, those who've been around judo for a while know exactly who he is and... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be critical of Phil Porter, the judoka. But I'm, if you guys want to be, you know, critical of Phil Porter, the man who is allegedly responsible for the three organizations split in the United States, feel free. I, I'm not gonna stop you there. Continuing on, if you are facing someone who knows no judo, and can be manipulated easily by you, then yes, this version of Osotogari will work. But if you are attempting to make this throw against a resisting opponent or a knowledgeable opponent, sorry, won't work. This is rather easy to demonstrate. Simply start looking for it. You'll not see it. It doesn't occur at all unless you are watching 6-8 to year old yellow belts. When you get the serious Rondori and Shi'ai, the classical form of Osotogari disappears completely. And in the article here, he gives, this is me now, in the article, he gives a couple of demonstrations uh, of pictures showing Anton Giesink and Yasuhiro Yamashita uh, doing Osorogari. And and in these pictures, uh, they certainly do not have uh, their driving leg next to the opponent's uh, lead leg there. So continuing on, one of the principles of judo is Zeroko Zenyo, 
Hopefully I got that right. Commonly translated as maximum efficiency, maximum efficiency with minimal effort. Another way to translate it and a personal favorite of mine would be best use of energy. My second assertion of this article is this. The classical version of Osorogari violates the principle of Siroku Zenyo. Covered in detail below is I show you why the classical version doesn't work. Now he goes on to say why he feels the classical version of Osorogari violates Siroku Zenyo. And I think he makes some good points. I'm not going to read them all here, but the basic gist of it is this. It's that the step entry and the way you reap is is not an efficient use of energy and he gives this example he says take any six-year-old child ask him to push uh as hard as they can against the wall and they will naturally assume a 45 degree angle of attack against the wall and he goes on to say you know if a six-year-old doesn't have to be taught how to exert maximum force with minimal effort why did we forget so the big point of his article is that when it comes to Osorogari, how it's actually done versus how it's actually taught, is that when it's actually done, people are using the angle of attack with their driving leg. Now, before I continue on with this train of thought, I've got a question for you, a couple questions. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you go to the gym, you have a killer workout, and you tell your significant other about it, and they're like, oh, that's nice, honey. Or maybe you've been really disciplined with nutrition and you're finally seeing the results, but no one seems to care. You just want a little recognition, right? Your friends and family may not be giving you the recognition you deserve, but Health IQ is willing to. Health IQ wants to recognize your hard work and dedication to a fit and healthy lifestyle by offering you savings on your life insurance. Health IQ is a life insurance agency that helps health conscious people like many of you listening to this podcast to get lower rates on their life insurance. According to a 2009 study in the International Journal of Sports Medicine, men who did high-intensity exercise have a 35% lower risk of all-cause mortality. For women, the risk reduction is 44%. By having an active and healthy lifestyle, Health IQ can get you lower rates on your life insurance policy if you qualify. Visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to learn more and to see if you can qualify for a lower rate on your life insurance. Now, further down in the article, he states, to put this effective version of Osorogari together and talking about the, the angle of attack version, you'll wait until Uke has stepped backwards with his right foot. At that time, you'll step backward and slightly to the right with your left foot. At the same time as you've stepped backwards, you'll be slamming your right forearm against Uke's left side chest and pulling downward with your left hand. Your right arm looks like it's delivering an uppercut to Uke's chin or ear. Now you'll reach out with your right foot. You are now leaning on your left foot with a 45 degree forward lean and attempt to hook Uke's right knee. Then just drive forward. Although notice that your forward direction is actually more sideways by your Uke's viewpoint. Very common at this point, by the way, is the need to hop forward to maintain the optimum 45 degree angle of attack. Now, here's the thing about this article. I tend to agree with it because, as I said before, Osotogari is my Tukui Waza. I have never, ever done Osotogari the way that it's actually taught. I've done Iponse Anagi, I've done Tayatoshi, I've done Uchimada, I've done 
Tomoinagi, Yoko Tomonagi, Ouchigari, Kouchigari, Deashi. I mean, the, the list is almost endless. For as many as there judo techniques there are, you know, I've, I've done all these techniques at least once. But his point, and I happen to agree that the way I do Osotogari, it is not the way that I've been taught Osotogari. Now, in practicing Osotogari over the past, uh, you know, couple of weeks, in the way that I've been, you know, getting Uke's balance backwards and the use of the hands and, and the driving leg and such, I, I think that's exactly the way that I do uh, Osotogari in, in practice or, or, or in Rondori, with the exception of stepping forward. When I was practicing with my sensei, I was stepping forward with my my left foot toward his right foot as the entry without a an angle of attack. But the way that I was practicing Osotogari with the use of the hands and in, in the direction of my head, it was breaking his balance off to the rear uh, rear uh, left corner in my case. But yeah, in Rondori or even in the contests that I've won uh, with Osotogari, I'm hooking that right my right foot. Uh, around the person's, uh, you know, the opponent's uh, right leg at an angle of attack, and I'm driving, hopping forward, just like what Ben says here. I can't, I can't really debate that. And as he mentioned earlier in the article, the only time I've ever done Osotogari the way that it's taught is against somebody who is truly inexperienced and not knowing, you know, what they're doing. And I've, I, but somebody who is skilled, somebody who's been doing judo for a while. Uh, and knows how to move and such. There's no way I uh, I can you know do Osotogari in the traditional way and and um, and not expect to be countered. That that's just w- without that driving leg and driving to the rear in the way that he's describing. I'm I'm getting countered on that throw. And you you know co- it's commonly taught that the counter to Osotogari is Osotogari. But if you've got a driving leg. It's a lot more difficult to do than it is from a traditional standpoint where if you're off balancing isn't right, it is very easy to counter Osotogari with Osotogari. Ben goes on to finish the article saying, I hope I've given you something to think about the next time you're teaching Osotogari, especially if when you're teaching your more advanced students. I don't believe that a judoka should make it past brown belt without a firm grasp of the difference between the classical and the dynamic forms of Osotogari. They really are virtually two different techniques, in my opinion, even though both the IGF and the Kodokan recognize both as the same throw. And in my viewpoint, I think people who have a tendency to do Osotogari in either Rondori or Shiai, they'll figure this out way on their own, way before Brown Belt, I would venture to guess. Or certainly before Shodan, they'll figure this out. I've never seen anybody do Osotogari uh, classically, uh, um, in the way that you step forward, the way that it's commonly taught. I, I shouldn't. Okay, maybe I shouldn't say never. I'm having a tough time remembering if I've seen anybody do it that way, and manage to be successful with it. On the podcast show notes, I will link to this article, and there, uh, Ben managed to put up. And I don't know if this is be- this site, bestjudo.com, is Ben's site. Um, but on the link that I will provide, there is a rebuttal to this article written by a fellow by the name of Steve Cunningham. I don't know who that is, but he did read a rebuttal. I'm not going to read the rebuttal here, 
But I will also link to that rebuttal because I do think he brings up good points. I think when it comes to teaching Osotogari, it is important to stick to the classical or traditional method of teaching Osotogari because I think there are valuable lessons to learn in terms of using your hands, generating kazushi, um, entry, hip placement, and, and the coordination that it all takes. I think there are valuable lessons to learn from that, from the traditional way of learning Osotogari, even if it's not a way that you would actually do in Rondori or, or in a tournament or in Shi'ai. So I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about the rules of judo, and I'm not going to be talking about the modern rules necessarily. I thought it might be interesting to some of you. It was interesting to me, given that the outrage over the rules, especially the latest rule changes, there's a lot of people down on these latest rule changes, and I don't, I really don't blame them. And of course, a lot of people are still down uh, eight years later after the leg grab ban. And I don't blame them either. You know, probably a year or two ago or, or when they made those changes, I understood them. I, I really wasn't outraged about it per se. But I, over over the past year, listening to some of the, some of the reaction from some of the things I've said, I, I've tended to soften my stance a little bit on the leg grab ban and how I feel about it. I am not necessarily in favor of the leg grab ban. I understand why they made the change. Um, but what I wanted to do was go through the history a little bit. I'm not going to be uh, very detailed per se, but I wanted to go a little bit through the history of the original documented Kodokan uh, rules for judo and how that has changed over the years. And I'm not going to go, you know, you know, read year by year or anything like that. But I just wanted to give a snapshot on how things changed in competitive judo and how really where we were and how we got to where we are today, or at least try to explore some of that. Now, before we get into our DeLoreans to punch in a date way in the past and ensuring that our flux capacitor is fluxing, I want to make sure that I give full credit to where I am sourcing a lot of this information, and that is none other than judoinfo.com. And for those of you who are not familiar with judoinfo.com, where the heck have you been? Because this is a website that I have been visiting for 20 years. Now, look, yeah, you're wondering. I, I, uh, I know I've been very upfront in saying that I've been doing judo for 12 years, but my interest in judo started way before that and my first exposure to judo and understanding what it is is because of judoinfo.com ran by a Mr. Neil Olenkamp I'm not sure if I got his last name correct but he's been a uh, great contributor to judo I quite frankly probably the most god dare I say it the most important uh, judo contributor over the past 20 years I mean it's as crazy as that sounds but I I kind of I kind of stand by that oh, oh, just about. I mean, who's done more in terms of presenting judo online than Mr. Neil Olenkamp? So, Neil, you're probably not listening to this, but I am very grateful, and I'm sure I speak to everybody listening here. We are all very grateful for the work that you have done over the past 20-plus years on judoinfo.com. We, we all miss the, uh, at least some of the older guys, uh, we all missed the, the Judo Forum, the original Judo Forum. That place used to be a 
wonderful place for judo discussion. And unfortunately, it's just kind of gone by the wayside. I don't think it's been updated in over a year. Um, but I miss the days back in the, you know, mid to late 2000s, uh, kind of the, the, the highlight of the judo forum. And um, it's just not it's not the same anymore. And uh, I, I don't really know what happened there. But but um, regardless of that, I know you played a very big part in in giving judoka around the world a forum to discuss what we are most passionate about. And I am very grateful for all of your contributions to judo. So so uh, Neil, thank you very much for everything you've done. But. The information and the discussion points that I want to bring up are from judoinfo.com. On that site, there is a section on the rules, and there's a lot of history on, uh, or a lot of information on the history of the rules of judo. And I'd like to cover some of that. So on judoinfo.com, there is a, it's judoinfo.com forward slash rules. This site has the original Kodokan judo tournament rules. And it was published in the a book called The Complete Kano Jiu-Jitsu uh, in 1905 by H. Irving Hancock. H. Irving Hancock, not Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and Katsukuma Higashi. So what's interesting to note here is that the original Kodokan Judo Tournament rules uh, only had 10 rules. And I'd like to cover them. Rule number one, each contestant shall wear a coat and a belt. Rule number two, a contestant shall be deemed to have been defeated when two shoulders and hips shall have touched the floor, provided that said contestant shall have reached this position on the floor through having been thrown down. Rule number three, a contestant shall be deemed to have been defeated when in such a position on the floor if said combatant cannot free himself from his opponent's arms within two seconds time. Rule number four, a contestant shall be deemed to have been defeated when from any cause or causes he may become unconscious, but it is not permitted to use serious tricks when the wrestling bout is between friends. Such tricks as kicking and the breaking of arms and legs and neck are barred. Well, that's nice. Rule number five. A combatant shall be deemed to have been defeated when he has been reduced to submission through the employment of his opponent by any hold or trick. By trick, I'm guessing they mean submission. Rule number six. When a defeated combatant finds himself obliged to acknowledge his submission, he must pat or hit his hit the floor with his, or his antagonist's body or somewhere with his hand or foot. This patting with the foot or ha hand is to be regarded as a token of surrender. The tap out. Rule number seven. When a defeated combatant pats or hits the floor or anywhere in token of submission, the victor must at once let go of his hold. Rule number eight. It is understood and agreed that the jiu-jitsu man, whether he fights a boxer or contests or with a wrestler, shall be allowed to use in his defense any of the tricks that belong to the art of jiu-jitsu. So I guess that means if uh, uh, a judoka is fighting a boxer, he can punch people. Rule number nine. It is further understood and agreed that the jiu-jitsu man assumes no responsibility for any injury or injuries caused by any act or thing done during the contest and that the jiu-jitsu man shall be held free and blameless 
for any such ill effect or injury that may be received during the contest. Rule number 10. Two competent witnesses representing each side, or four in all, shall see to it that these articles of agreement are properly drawn, signed, and witnessed to the end that neither contestant or other participant in the match shall have cause for action on any ground or grounds resulting from any injury or injuries or death caused during the contest. I guess that's uh, their form of a waiver back in 1905. So that's it. Those were the original Kodokan Judo rules of 1905. Boy, have times changed. <laughs> in 1908, there was a book called Judo, Japanese Physical Culture, written by a Mr. Sumitomo Arima. And in this book, there is a not so much a revision, but maybe a, a clear explanation of some of the rules. And I'm going to read some of these rules uh, right now. And I think you guys may find some of this interesting. So I'm going to try and go through this very quickly. Number one, the contest in Rondori at the Kodokan is decided by Nagewaza or Katamiwaza. Rule number two, Nagewaza includes Tachiwaza and Sutemiwaza and Katamiwaza includes Shimewaza, Osaiwaza, Osaikomiwaza, and Kansetsuwaza. But in contests of opponents below the rank of Shodan, Kansetsuwaza is not regarded as deciding the issue. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Does that mean that if you are below the rank of Shodan in 1908 and you do an arm bar, that's not going to get you a win? Curious. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, that's, why it, it, that's how it sounds to me. Rule number three, the issue is decided by two contests, but in each case, it, but in each con, uh, but in case each contestant scores a victory, another contest should be performed. So I guess that so you two out of three, the rubber match, if, if uh, there's a draw at the second match. Rule number four, in the event of a contest being undecided after the lapse of a certain time, the umpire should say hikiwaki and order the, the contestants to withdraw. All right, rule number five. When either of the contestants win in victory, the umpire should call out Ippon. Should another victory be won by the same person, the umpire must cry Nihon. Now, that, that's really interesting to me. So, yeah, I just, they they considered the the best two out of three a, a single contest. So, so it's interesting to hear. I, I've never, I didn't know this before, that there was a Nihon score. Then it goes on to say, should should the other person who was defeated initially win, um, the the ump will cry, the umpire will cry upon, and order the third bout to take place, and whoever wins that one, um, the uh, the the umpire slash referee will will exclaim Nihon and award the victory to that person. Rule number six: When a nagiwaza is fairly performed by one, though not decisive enough to be classified as ipon. And when one performs a katamiwaza, almost entitling it to be called ipon, but in spite of which the opponent manages to avert defeat, the umpire should call out wazari. And when a similar circumstance or circumstances occur afterwards, he may call out awaseti ipon. Altogether, one victory. That's what it means. In such a manner, he may award victory to the one who has achieved two or more imperfect victories. In the event of such an imperfect victories occurring on both sides, the umpire must weigh them well in deciding the issue. The rule is applicable to both Nagewaza and Katamiwaza. Rule number seven goes on to explain the criteria for Ippon. It says, a perfect victory in Nagewaza must have the following qualifications. 
The fall must not be intentional or accidental, but must result from the perfect performance of a trick or from the effectual parrying of the same. The opponent must fall with his face turned upwards, though this rule cannot be applied to all tricks. <laughs> the fall must be effected in a clean and decisive manner. Rule number eight, if a contestant on whom a nagawaza has been performed extricates himself before his body falls to the ground, he must not be judged as defeated. So if you turn out of the throw, you're, you're not going to get called the pawn. That's, that's pretty standard over the past centuries or so. <laughs> Rule number nine. However, quick a contestant may regain his position. He is defeated if his body has once fallen to the ground. I'm not sure what that means. Rule number 10, if an opponent on whom a perfect nagewaza has been performed refuses, as frequently happens, to fall on the ground and clings to his opponent, the umpire has to decide the issue independent of paragraph 7. Rule number 11, the issue of katamewaza contest is decided by the defeated party striking or, or hitting his opponent's body with his hand or foot more than twice saying, Myri, which apparently means I am defeated. Rule number 12, it is advisable that judo students of the rank of Shodan should divide their hours for learning, this is really interesting, should divide their hours for learning judo at the rate of 70 or 80% for Nagiwaza and 30 or 20% for Katamiwaza, and those above Shodan rank at the rate of 60 to 70% for Nagiwaza and 40 to 30% for Katamiwaza, respectively. That's really interesting to me because I, I really believe for most judo clubs, that's still, that standard on how much should be dedicated to what still stands today for the most part. I would say most clubs out there spend 70% of the time uh, practicing their throws and then 30% of the time doing their, um, you, you know, working on the ground ability and stuff, you, you know, ground techniques. And that that's always been my experience. Um, not only in my own clubs, but other clubs that I visited. That's that sounds about right. So I think that's that's a good. It's in, just interesting to see that even a hundred years ago, um, that was kind of the standard. And finally, rule number thirteen: even those above Shodan rank are not permitted to join to perform kansetsuwaza on a finger joint or wrist while playing the randori contest. Another style of contest is the kohaku. Uh, Shi'ai, which is where contestants are divided into two parties, each party being arranged according to their skill. The contest begins with the least proficient opponents and is decided by one victory. When an opponent is defeated, he is followed by a member of his party uh, next in order to him. So this is talking about the Kohaku Shi'ai, which actually takes part once a year. If I'm not mistaken, I still that believe that tournament continues on to this day at the Kodokan. Um, I'm almost 100% certain on that, but I've never been to the Kodokan, so I can't really comment on that. But I believe that tournament, the Kohaku Shi'ai, still happens today. So what immediately stands out to me is that, well, the, the second set of rules that I read from 1908, there's, there's 13 rules. There, there's, there's 13 documented rules. And what that indicates to me is that Back then, everybody knew what judo was supposed to look like, at least at the Kodokan. There was no, nobody had the debate, you know, rolling Ipon or anything like that. Everybody knew in their mind what an Ipon looked like and what a Wazari looked like. And uh, of obviously back then, there was only Ipon and Wazari. You know, and, and, I, and I almost liken it to 
you know, when when trying to figure out Ipon versus Wazari. I know coaches these days, you they could they could they could debate just about most calls out there. But back then, you know, it's almost like when we talk about Hall of Fame athletes and whether or not be, uh, they belong, it's like that old saying, if you have to ask, then they probably shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. So I, I would liken it to, you know, when it came to Ipon and Wazari back then. If you had to ask whether that's an Ipon, then it probably wasn't an Ipon. So it seems to me that with these rules and the simplicity of them, that everybody knew what they were looking for and everybody knew what they were looking at. And... and just to be absolutely clear, these rules that I'm reading right now are not for the contests that used to occur under the old jiu-jitsu rules between the Kodokan and various, you know, jiu-jitsu schools in Japan. This, what I'm trying to do here, um, and I'm going to get to it, I'm trying to present a snapshot of what judo rules used to be, and I'm not really discussing those old uh, challenge matches between the Kodokan and, and various jiu-jitsu schools during the... Uh, the late 1800s. That that that's a completely different subject. Uh, one day I would like to talk a little bit about that, but it, that's not uh, my objective here. So those were the big rule changes, and what I want to cover now, and I'll try and run through this quickly, is some of the. Key, it is again, this is all from Judo Info site. Some of the key changes that happened over the years, um, and I, I'll, I'll try and. List it out by year and and explain what those changes were and and I I think for the most part really up until we get to 2010 most people would well no I take that back not until we get to 2010 probably till we get to about the 1960s and 70s you is where we'll start seeing you know where judo may has lost its way in terms of competitive judo so here we go in 1916. Leg locks were banned by the Kodokan along with uh, Dojime, you know, the guard squeeze, because that, that can be dangerous techniques, uh, at least certainly the guard squeeze. Whether leg locks are dangerous techniques are debatable. Um, I normally don't freak out if I'm rolling with jujitsu guys and they do a leg lock on me. I would freak out on a heel hook, but not, not a leg lock. Um, in 1925, joint lock attacks were limited to the elbow only. Um... Now, I do not know when the Nihon score was done away with, but the earliest record I could find uh, is in 1955 where the winners of a contest were decided by Ipon only and not best out of two, uh, not the best two out of three. And just for reference here, if you guys are wondering, the, the IJF, the International Judo Federation, was founded in 1951. And at that time, their rules... And the Kodokan rules were one and the same. In um, and, and again, all from Judo Info. In 1955, uh, the time limit for a contest was between 3 minutes and 20 minutes. Now, I'm not sure if that means the minimum amount of time you, you, you had to have a fight is 3 minutes. So does that mean that any big falls in, in the first 3 minutes don't count? I really don't know. I, I can't imagine that would be the case, but... I wasn't around in 1950. I was not around in 1955. So by 1955, judo has gone to using one ref and two judges on the side. And back then, you had the two side judges to rule the out of bounds. And you also had side judges to declare who the winner was in a situation where there was a draw or, or a tie at the end of the match. And I'm sure many of you 
listening to this podcast uh, do remember those days. I haven't seen a side judge in, in, in a little while. I mean, yeah, I know it hasn't been that long, but but we're still talking about the days when there was not a golden score. Uh, uh, in, in the event that there was a, a tie, the main referee would call Hante, and at that moment, the two side judges would raise a red or white flag indicating who they felt the winner of the contest was. And if the side judges felt that there was a draw, they would be raised both flags. Um, as far as I know... This happened before I started judo, but but golden score wasn't introduced into competitive judo until 2003. So I'm sure for many of you people listening, uh, you remember the days when you had to determine. You you a lot of contests were left up to the to the side judges and the referee um, officiating the match. But but you, but the thing is, what's what's kind of odd, you know, as I was going through the through the documentation and reading all of this. I started judo in 2006, and I seem to remember being told all of this. So I I don't I don't quite recall if I knew all of this because I was told it or because I experienced it. I I, I really don't remember to tell you the truth. I seem to remember my instructors at the time, my sensei telling me at the time that it was very important, even in a draw situation, that. If you leave it up to the referee's decision, that one attack that you did, and it failed, but that one load, let's say you're doing Iponse and Nag, you managed to get them on your back, but you couldn't finish the throw. In a, in a really tough and close match, that one load could be the difference between you winning and losing. I remember a sensei telling me that, but with with the advent of Golden Score in 2003, I don't know if that sensei was... Um, Maybe he just wasn't aware of the rules. I mean, he was an older gentleman for sure. Uh, or or maybe the side judges were still, the, the main referee would still call Hante at the end of Golden Score. I, I don't quite remember, but I do remember being told that the importance of, and and the, the bigger lesson was the importance of committing to attacks and, and not faking attacks and stuff. Because that one big attack that you went for and missed could, could give you a victory at the end of a match if there was no decision or no score or points on the board. There's another interesting rule that I read in the 1955 rule set that I think it still exists today. I just can't picture how it works. So it goes, when a contestant is attacked with Harai Ghost, you can't sweep from the inside of the leg with which his opponent is supporting his weight. So I don't quite know what that means. Does that mean if somebody's attacking me with Horai Goshi that I can't do something like, yeah, for example, like a Kouchigari type technique throwing forward on that leg? Um, I, I mean, I personally would never do such a thing, countering Horai Goshi or, or similar throws like that. That's just not how I would defend it. But I, the wording of that rule is a little odd to me. I don't, it's just a situation I, I just wouldn't inherently do. Um. So if anybody knows, feel free to let me know and, and clear that up for me. Now, continuing on with the evolution of the judo rules, um, spine locks were out by 1955 and guard slams were out by 1955. However, back then you could lift you could lift the opponent up up to your shoulders as if you were going to do a guard slam, but uh, you can't actually slam them down. And if you used to, if, from my understanding, if you did that, they would call any pawn. 
1955, you were not allowed to use the knee or the foot to do any sort of grip breaking. Uh, you were not allowed to deliberately avoid the grip, overly defensive postures. Uh, continual same side grips were disallowed in 1955, which is interesting. Or, or And same goes for gripping the belt and stiff arming your opponent out. So I, I thought some of that stuff, like, you know, using your knee to do grip breaks and stuff like that and overly defensive postures, I would have guessed that that stuff would have become a, a cemented rule by the 80s and 90s. I didn't realize they addressed this way back in the 50s. I thought that was really interesting. Now, here's another one that I just talked about this on my last episode, thinking that this was a a new rule, but it looks like this has been an old rule. And what I what I read the other day or, or the other week, um, it was not new. It was just in the IJF documentation. It was just a, a clarification of that rule. The rule I'm talking about is not being allowed to use the belt or the end of the jacket for uh, submissions or techniques. I thought that was kind of a new rule, but I, I guess not. I guess that was documented back in the 50s. Here's another interesting one that I read. When a contestant is lying on his back on the floor and his opponent is standing on his feet or kneeling on his knees in a position able to lift the, fly, the lying contestant, it is against the rules for the lying contestant to strangle the neck of the standing contestant or to apply Kansetsu Waza against him by scissoring both the neck and the armpit with his legs. So I don't know about you, but it sounds like to me that back in 1955, you were not allowed to do triangle chokes. I, I, that's how that description sounds to me. Um, continuing on, Ipon for Osai Komi used to be 30 seconds. In order to get a Wazari, if you had a Wazari, in order to get another Wazari for any pawn, you had to hold them down for 25 seconds. Yikes, that's tough. All right, so now I'm going to keep trying to move throughout the year. So that was that was really 1955, some of the big rule changes that was not documented in, in the earlier years. In 1964, which was the first year judo was in the Olympics, the IJF introduced weight categories uh, because prior to 1964, all tournaments were open weight. And for the Olympics in Tokyo, it, it was this under 68 kilos, under 80 kilos, and over 80 kilos. Now, what I'm about to talk about is where one could argue competitive judo started taking a turn for the worse. Some people may argue that competitive judo started taking a turn for the worse in the Olympics in 1964. But here is where I think things started to take a turn for the worse. And I understand from a certain point of view, why judo went this way. But I do think this is where things, it was like, if you want to call it the beginning of the end of leg grabs, it was here, 1974. In 1974, the Yuko and Coca scores were added along with Shido as a penalty. Now, I happen to think the Yuko and the Coca scores were harmful to judo. Well, okay, maybe harmful is a strong word. I think it took something away. And I think that when Yuko and Koka were added, you, one could argue that it could harm development over the long run, judo development over the long run. And my point is, as the Olympics started becoming, became an important thing for judo, you have national governing bodies having a vested interest in its athletes' 
you know, winning gold at the Olympics and such. You have countries with vested interests winning uh, uh, for athletes winning gold in the Olympics. It, I really think adding the Yuko and the Coco was a game changer. And really going for Ipon and Wazari was not as important. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, all the way through today that it's the Ipon's not important. I'm just saying back then its value may not have been nearly as high as it once was back in, heck, just, just nine years prior, really. And I've talked about this before. I think having the Coca and the Yuko, uh, uh, eventually it took it took decades, but eventually led to the leg grab ban because competitors just started doing what was the easiest way to get a score. It was it, it for a lot not all competitors, but for a lot of competitors, it wasn't about winning by Ipon. It was about uh, it was just about winning the match uh, by any means necessary. If that's invoking Shido. If that's uh, getting a coca and riding that out for for five minutes, um, I have always maintained if you wanted to address the persistent leg grab issue as hard as it would have been for a lot of the athletes to adjust and and the refs and and maybe pleasing the the overlords at the um, at the IOC, had judo gone back to its original roots of only having Ipon and a true definition of Wazari, not not today's butchered definition, a true definition of Wazari. I always felt if you had went back to Ipon and Wazari scores only, the leg grab issue would have fixed itself. Because I'm telling you guys, I don't care what you guys say about you know you know leg grabs being high scoring techniques. They weren't. They were not reliable techniques to get an Ipon or Wazari. And if the original intent of judo is to win contests by Ipon, really statistics have bore out that, you know, throw like Morotegari, very difficult to get a Ipon score on. And I would go as far as saying for Morotegari, it's, it's, it's really a high risk, low reward technique during the days when it was just Ipon and Wazari only. Because it, it just didn't put you in the best position to defend if you missed it. And, you know, if you caught somebody back in those days with a Morotegari and they land on their butt or whatever, that's no score. It, it, that's how that used to be called. But you introduce the Yuko and the Coca, oh, landing on your butt, that's a score. Hey, so I'm going to, you know, single and double leg all day and just, just rack up minor scores. And, you know, and, and that's that. That's really what judo became. Um, not every match, but a lot of matches I watched bent over postures, overly defensive, you know, reaching for legs every five seconds. It seemed that's that's a lot of matches became that way. And I think because of the Yuko and Coca scores being there, um, players, coaches just went for what was the best way to win a contest, not necessarily winning by Ipon. And I can't blame them. You know, everybody's getting paid here. You're making money to be a head coach. You're making money to be a head coach to ensure that your athletes win. How do you win? It's, it, there's many ways to win a judo tournament these days, and it doesn't have to be three pawn. And, you know, as an aside, for all of you people out there who say that the Olympics ruined judo um, and make that argument, quite frankly, I think you guys have a point. And, you know, I can see why they added the Yuko and the Coca. Because I'm sure many of these contests lasting seven, 
you know, seven minutes long, you know, ending in a draw and stuff. Look, there's a there's a lot of money involved in the Olympics, as everybody knows. And you can't have contests decided by referees. You could not have contests continue to be decided by a Hante. So you needed to give the athletes every opportunity to decide the outcome of a contest on the mat without referee intervention. So in that regard, I get it. You know, you add the Coca, you add the Yuko, and you give the athletes an opportunity to win the contest, you know, because you don't want the referees deciding the outcome of matches. You, you, Everybody hates it when it happens in basketball, baseball, football, soccer, whatever. Everybody hates it when the ref gets involved in the match. They should be seen and not heard unless they're calling for Ripon. So I get it. I, I, I don't like it. But but I do get why they did it. it. And so for those of you out there who say putting judo in the Olympics ruined judo, and this is why we've gotten to this point, yeah, I kind of agree. I, I I can't. If you're looking at it at this in this context, um, I I kind of agree. And now moving on throughout the years, you can see how judo has changed to satisfy uh, the people at the IOC. Now moving on through. Uh, the rule changes throughout the years. Obviously, 1980 was a big one when Connie Basami was banned. And that happened after Yamashita's leg was broken at the All Japan by uh, Sumio Endo. I'm sure some of you have seen that uh, pretty gruesome video. Awful injury. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Now, I don't have a, a an exact year on when contests were whittled down the five minutes. But I do know... Um, I, I don't know when that happened. I do know, like, for example, in 1984 Olympics, the length of matches had been whittled down to seven minutes. But I think prior to that, the length of time in a contest was up to uh, the Olympic Committee and the, and the IJF. So I, perhaps in years prior to 84, during the 60s and 70s, it, it might have been all over the place. It could have been 10 minutes for the World Championships versus versus eight minutes for the Olympics. It could have been a variety of ways, but it looks like uh, even as relatively recent as 1984, the time limit for a, a contest was was seven minutes. In 2003, Golden Score was added, but it wasn't until 10 years later when Hante was removed from Golden Score. So, see, this is what I was talking about earlier. I do remember being told about Hante and I guess that was removed in in 2013. Now, also in 2003, they added the golden score, but they removed the Chewy and Kekuku penalties. No, not that Chewy. Which is, again, it's really interesting because when I started judo in 2006, I remember Chewy. Uh, I, I remember uh, Kekoku, or at least being taught that. So again, maybe my instructor had it wrong and was not aware that the Chewy and Kekoku penalties were removed in 2003. I, again, I, I remember being taught that in 2006. In 2008, uh, the IJF removed the COCA score, which I think is a... I, I really thought the COCA existed in 2008. That that was... I, I look, Again, I got this from Judo Info site. I thought the COCA existed back then. Um, but maybe not. I thought the Coca was removed in 2010 along with the arguably the most controversial change in, in IGF history, which was the leg grab ban. 
But even back then in 2008, everybody thinks that the leg grab ban happened. I mean, in 2010, everybody thinks that grabbing the legs were, were banned altogether. And that really wasn't the case. It was, if I recall correctly, you could, you just could not lead with an initial leg grab. You could still do all the leg grabbing techniques, but it had to be a secondary technique. So, you know, for example, I don't know, you do Ponce Anagi, you get stuffed, you come back around, you go right for a Murotegari. Or, um, you know, somebody comes in with a big Osotogari and, and you, you have, uh, you, you Tewaza, like Teguruma. And when that change happened, I was, I mean, I was fine with it because by then my judo had been, I, I'd been doing judo well enough that I, I just didn't really, it didn't impact my judo very much at all. Um, doesn't mean that I was never grabbing the leg, but, but, you know, back then, um, you could still, well, no, you couldn't really do Koichi Makikomi. That did impact me a little bit. Uh, you can do Koichi Makikomi now. You just can't use your hand to grab the leg. But really, the evolution of judo rules here, and I, I this was a brief, well, not maybe not so brief now that I'm about an hour and a half in. Um, this was just a brief synopsis that I wanted to offer you guys, if you, in case you found it interesting, how the rules have evolved. And what initially started as a as ten bullet points uh, for judo rules is now uh, last I saw a fifty five page uh, PDF document on the IGF's website to cover all the judo rules. So, what's the moral of this story? I don't know. Maybe the ultimate moral of this story is that the Olympics ruined judo. <laughs> and look, I gotta say, I was watching the other day. The 1961 Judo World Championships. There's a 56-minute or so video up on YouTube. And I found it fascinating. And I find it more entertaining, to be honest. Back then, there weren't really scouting. So when you, you know, if you're a, a big, tall American and you're facing Anton Giesink for the first time, you don't have any idea what that guy's going to do. You just see he's just a massive man that that has great judo. And what's interesting to me to see old school judo like that is since there was no scouting, the story of the contest unfolds right from the get-go. You have two men gripping each other, trying to figure out what's their weak spot. What are their tendencies? What are they doing? How are they moving? Why are they moving this way? What are they setting up for? How it just just the story of the match is unfolding as it happens. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in judo today. It's just it was just a lot more patient and to me a lot more interesting. Uh, you know, these days it's it's grip, go, 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 stop. And then, you know, grip, go, 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 attack, 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 stop. I mean, that's that's how it feels when I watch modern judo today versus, you know, back then. You're, you're kind of waiting with bated breath, um, waiting for when is that big technique going to happen? Is it going to happen right now? Is, is Giesink going to get his big Osotogari? You know, is, I, I don't know, whoever was big in those days, uh, Giesink's the only name coming to mind at the moment, but 
you're kind of anticipating when's the big throw going to happen. And let me tell you, these throws that some of these guys are pulling off back then, they are huge throws. Now, granted, they're not grip fighting like they do today. But again, the it's almost as if I was saying before, everybody doing judo knew what judo was, knew what it meant to be, what it was meant to be, and knew how to play the game. Nobody was trying to, it didn't look like anyway, nobody was trying to game the system for certain advantages. And, and, you know, what else was funny about the, uh, about the 1961 World Championships is the mats were on a platform. So, you know, one thing I can't stand about competitive judo is edge play. I hate it. Uh, you, you know, you hate the edge play. Well, you know, if you start doing a technique and you end up off the mat, you're you're falling down pretty hard off the side. So it's not that was not advisable back then. So contests tend to happen. You know, I'm sure edge play happened. Don't get me wrong, but but the, to the degree that you see it today, it's just not the same. So very interesting stuff. I I it's the 1961 World Championships is about is. All the judo videos you can find of a tournament. Uh, maybe there's older ones out there that I'm not aware of. But when I see that, I see what judo was meant to be um, uh, uh, by its founders. I, I think if Jigoro Kano were to view judo at the World Championships in 1961 versus uh, 2016, 2017 he would probably identify with far more what was going on in 1961 uh, than in 2017. I'm, I'm not even sure he would look at uh, judo in 2017 and, and recognize it, which I'm sure many of you old school people out there, people been doing judo for 30 plus years. I, I, I said in my last episode, I got to wonder, you see these rule changes uh, especially since 2010 and beyond. And I, I got to think that it just looks unrecognizable to you. Now, I'm not saying it's not exciting. Hey, I like watching competitive judo. I, I think it is exciting to watch. I think it's interesting. I probably would lean toward preferring to watch judo that represented more like the, the old style, but that's just me. Um, I do think the athletes... And, and their skill level these days are phenomenal. And I really do believe you're seeing the best of the best of the best in today's judo. Where maybe in 1961, you know, the United States might have sent a guy like me. Or, no, probably not. But you know what I mean. They, they just were not the same athletes. That's really what I was trying to, to get across. All righty. I think I've rambled on here long enough. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, if you found it a little bit interesting, please feel free to write to me. Shoot me a, a, a tweet at Lavita Judoka. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at Lavita Judoka. Uh, feel free to email me as well if you liked it, if you didn't like it, if you thought I rambled on too long. Show at gmail.com. And of course, you can always find me on Facebook. Uh, search on the Judo Chop Suey podcast and and that's uh, or you can just search for Dave Roman or David Roman. I'm a handsome man, so I'm hard to miss. So anyway, with that, I hope you have a great day. I hope you have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style.